Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Niga. Two days after Election Day, uh, we have resolved most of the races in the state of Georgia. But, of course, as you've just heard on NPR News, Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock, headed into a runoff. And the reason I mentioned that you heard it on NPR News is this is another sign that Georgia will once again be the center of attention across the country uh, as that runoff gets under Way. We're going to talk about all that. We're going to talk a little bit about what the exit polls show us about the issues that Stacey Abrams ran into in terms of trying to attract uh, voters to her side uh, in the governor's race, um, and a lot more on this edition of Political Rewind. So let me get right to introducing uh, the panel. Kevin Riley, the boss, the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us today. How are you, Kevin? Your team, like ours, is very busy the last few days and more. Yeah, and Bill, I, I, uh, I'm I glad to see that you're still standing, um, and I, I wanted to congratulate you and your team because I know just how much work you put in this week. It keeps going strong, and uh, thank God for uh, Natalie Mendenhall, who's behind all of this for you, I know. Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, Jake <laughs> Cook. <laughs> Veronica Evans Cash, all of them have been uh, really wonderful. Thank you for saying that, Kevin. Uh, Margaret Coker is back with us, too. Margaret Coker, editor in chief of The Current, uh, which is based down on the uh, Georgia coast in Savannah, digital news operation that covers the coast, but certainly covers stories across Georgia and beyond. Margaret, you've been busy, too. Margaret, over the years, you've had a of a, a long and very successful career as a journalist. So election days are probably as exciting for you as they are for most of us who cover the political news. Absolutely. There's no other day where I feel more American than on election day. And uh, yeah, we, we all get to suit up and be in the starting lineup of our nation. Yeah. David Wilkerson, state representative from Cobb County, is uh, back with us on the show today as well. Uh, David, mixed results for you in the Democratic Party of Georgia. Stacey Abrams, of course, lost by a pretty significant margin to Brian Kemp. On the other hand, uh, Raphael Warnock uh, was the one Democrat on the statewide ballot who is still alive and running for that seat. Yeah, thank you for having me this morning. Glad to be back. Um, yeah, it was the result kind of tracked, I guess, along with what the polling had said they would. Um, so right now our focus really is on that runoff election that's right around the corner. So um, it's not over yet. It's still a you know purple state like we thought it was. It's just that um, a lot of headwinds running against our, our, our statewide candidates. And so, like I said, um, as we politicos do, we start focusing on the, the next election um, as we still <laughs> yeah, represent right. our constituents. Uh, Edward Lindsay, I saved you for last uh, for a reason. Uh, first of all, we should remind people that you're a former member of the Georgia State House. You represented Atlanta 
Uh, and um, now you're uh, an attorney at Denton's, the world's largest law firm. You oversee their Georgia government affairs practice. But I saved you for last because you're also a member of the state election board. And I thought it would be a good idea to have you tell us a little bit uh, from the election board's point of view how the election unfolded. There were so many concerns about whether or not counties were prepared for what could be a big surge in voting. There were concerns about absentee ballots and how those would be handled, concerns about disruptions at polling places uh, by partisans and the like. So give us your uh, uh, take on how the election, in fact, unfolded. Well, I'm going to disappoint Kevin Riley because there really wasn't much news. Uh, in terms of how it, it unfolded. Uh, and, and thank you for giving me the opportunity because I, I, I want to give a shout out to our election people uh, in the various counties and our poll workers who are operating the various polls because they did a magnificent job. We did have a surge. Early voting, uh, I think we had a little over 20% higher early voting than we did uh, four years ago. and We also had a high turnout all the way through to the end. And especially when you look at how ultimately the the votes were counted and turned into the Secretary of State and posted in Georgia versus some of these other states like Nevada and Arizona, who are still counting. And we're still hearing that there are hundreds of thousands of votes who haven't been counted in those states. By 2 a.m. on Wednesday morning, uh, except for a few scattering votes around the state, including uh, some votes that, uh, that, that, you know, or provisional votes which could or could not be contested, or overseas military ballots that are due to come in by Friday, I believe, uh, we were done around the state. I had the honor, for instance, of uh, spending the evening and early morning with uh, the folks up in Gwinnett County and, uh, and their election director, Zach Manipal, and I saw an extremely efficient operation. And uh, our other board members around the, uh, around the state who, who also visited and spent time with other major counties saw the same things. Glitches take place, mistakes are made, but I was also pleased to see where a mistake was made. Uh, they rectified it. In David Wilkerson's uh, our county, Cobb County, uh, they made a mistake in terms of getting absentee ballots, some absentee ballots out to about 1,200 people. I think that's what it was, David. But what did Cobb County do? Did they put it underneath the rug? No, they stepped up and, uh, and came up with a resolution that everyone could... Uh, could live with in terms of giving folks extra time to turn their ballots back in and and moved on. So I, I think that we're seeing, particularly on the county level uh, around the state, and we have 159 different uh, election boards around the state, folks stepping up uh, and meeting the challenge. And, and when it comes to these higher turnouts that hopefully we'll continue to see, because I think everyone on this board uh, panel can agree that high turnout is good for democracy. So I, I'm, I could not be more proud of how Georgia handled its election system, particularly when folks take a look at how we did and, and how we finished up uh, versus how some of these other states did. Uh, with By well, Wednesday afternoon, uh, the Secretary of State was able to, with confidence, say that the, that the results are what they are, and we're headed for a runoff in one race. So hats off to all the folks. And when you go back on to the polls on December 6th, Make sure to thank the poll workers. That's my final. Yeah, that, that's that's really true. I, considering all of the uh, uh, disruptive uh, pr- uh, practices in the past in 2020, 
all of the accusations thrown at poll workers for uh, trying to rig elections in states around the country, including Georgia, um, it was, it's really wonderful that uh, so many people stepped up and went out and worked at their polling places. Well, uh, Kevin Riley, uh, speaking of uh, delayed vote returns in other states, let's set frame how the runoff in Georgia uh, is going to uh, start playing out after we hear from Nevada and Arizona. And here's what I mean by that. Right now in Nevada, the last reporting I saw showed 79% of the vote counted Adam Laxalt. The Republican was leading that race um, with 49.7% of the vote. Catherine Cortez uh, Masto had uh, 47.3%. That race is too close to call. So a Democrat could win that race. Um, right now, the Republican leads. In Arizona, Mark Kelly is out in front of Blake Masters, an election denier and big Trumper, uh, by a little bit bigger margin. But the reason I point this out, and Mark Kelly, of course, is a Democrat, if, in fact, both Democrats or both Republicans in those races win, then control of the Senate will not come down to what happens in Georgia. But if there's a split... If a Republican in one and a Democrat in the other wins, then Georgia becomes the center of national attention, and it is Georgia voters who will determine the control of the U.S. Senate, Kevin. Yeah, and I guess we better get ready for it to come down to Georgia, right? Because um, it just seems like no matter what we do, we end up as the center of the political universe. Um, I mean— I guess I have to confess privately, I'm hoping it would be kind of nice if we could take it easy through this runoff and not be faced with all the television commercials and all the national media here and everyone tripping over every word each candidate says. But it looks like it's going to be that way, Bill, and it looks like uh, the political rewind staff will get no rest. <laughs> Margaret, um it, 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 it does come down to Georgia, potentially. Uh, it looks as if, to me, and I want to get your feedback, uh, that the Walker campaign has really geared up very, very quickly for this runoff election. I mentioned on our shows yesterday that um, on Wednesday morning at 5 a.m., I saw a commercial for Herschel Walker, which means that Days ahead of that time, the Walker campaign had booked time on the day after the election on the off chance there would be a runoff. They could have pulled it if they had either won outright or lost outright, but they were ready to go. Rick Scott, uh, who was leading the Senate Republican campaign effort, has said they're going to get very involved in this race quickly. Ted Cruz is heading to uh, Georgia to campaign for Herschel Walker. So they're really getting off to a fast start. We'll see how the Warnock campaign does in response to that. Yeah, it's going to be, again, really interesting because turnouts um, turnouts are going to be even more important than they were for the general election. And what we know about Herschel Walker as a first-time candidate is he has no organic ground game himself here in the state of Georgia. He has no constituency. He has no favors that he can call in with his old political buddies or his old business pals because most of his businesses have been based outside of the state. So he's going to need a lot of outside help in order to get him to the finish line, as opposed to um, the Reverend Warnock. The Reverend Warnock you know, spent his last weekend uh, before the general election here in Savannah, his hometown. 
he, as a black pastor, has an enormous advantage with black church networks that um, exist in every single county of the state, let alone the um, the vaunted ground game and get out the vote um, organization that has been put together by the state Democrats. So there's um, there's a lot to watch over the next several weeks for sure. David, um, Margaret's take on that uh, would certainly please you as a, a Democrat. At the same time, we, we have to point out that, uh, again, Warnock is the only Democrat on the statewide ticket that uh, who was able to keep himself alive in this race. Um, and the question is going to be whether he can, in fact, keep that momentum going and move across the finish line. I believe he can because Warnock is also the only one that has a recent record running at that same level. So as a senator, he can talk about the record he had, just like Governor Kemp did. Um, I think you're going to see Senator Warnock be able to focus and get people to focus on what he's done as far as prescription drugs, working with the other side, being a moderate voice in the Senate that, that George is known for, whether you go back to the Johnny Isaacson of the world. I mean, that's what you see in Senator Warnock. If you talk to a lot of my colleagues, they'll say how they've appreciated the work that he's done on both sides of the aisle. So I, I look forward to just having one-on-one time between Warnock and Walker where people can actually see and, and vote for the uh, candidate they think will best represent their interests. Um, because families have said that they care about the economy. They care about prescription drugs. They care about, um, you know, what's happening in their communities. And I think um, that's where um, the reverend will shine. Edward, uh, is there anything that either Herschel Walker or Raphael Warnock can do in terms of messaging now? We can talk about vote, get, getting the vote out uh, also on the show. But in terms of messaging, they, the voters have already heard all the arguments from each side about why their opponent should lose and they should win. So we're going to see, I assume, the same basic messages. Uh, Raphael Warnock voted with Joe Biden 96% of the time. Uh, he's responsible for inflation uh, and, a, and a poor economy, which is questionable, arguable. And we're going to see the Warnock campaign continue to try to highlight all of the baggage that they've pointed out about Herschel Walker in the past. It, and neither argument has put either of them over the top in the general election. Well, to sort of pick up on what Margaret just said uh, in terms of um, voter turnout, uh, the quick answer to your question is, are they going to be able to persuade anybody? No. Uh, you know, they're going to spend tens of millions of dollars on, on ads. Uh, we're going to watch it all the way through the Macy's Thanksgiving parade. Uh, but, and even probably some Hallmark Christmas, uh, movies as well. <laughs> but the bottom line is it's going to be a ground campaign. I, I do take some exception to what Margaret said in terms of, of voter turnout drives. Uh, the Republicans learned a very good lesson from 2020 and 2021 uh, when, they, quite frankly, the Democrats outperformed them uh, in terms of uh, get out the vote drives uh, and have worked very hard to, to get their uh, respective uh, operations up, up to speed. And I think a large part of what you saw on Tuesday in terms of Republicans sweeping all the constitutional officers and the, uh, and the governor's office reflects that. I don't expect those folks to fold tents simply because uh, the only race left is the U.S. Senate race. Uh, uh, you still have a very strong GOP operation that's going to be out there. Kemp's uh, operation is certainly going to be out there uh, 
performing as well. And one that we don't talk about a lot, which is Kelly Leffler's uh, third-party group uh, that has built a very strong network. So I expect both sides to do what you what, what you they should do, in which they're going to push their people to the polls. The, the the big question is, you know, which one both both candidates have certain headwinds they got to overcome. Uh, and in the case of Warnock, it's the fact that uh, you've got a president who uh, nationwide has only a 42 percent approval rating and in Georgia has a 38 percent. That's uh, Senator Warnock's uh, uh, party president. So he's going to have to deal with that. Walker, you know, we've gone through it oftentimes on this show. His is a very large number of uh, uh, personal uh, issues that have come out. Some he's admitted to, some he's opposed. So both of them have some headwinds. But at the end of the day, it's going to be all about who can drive people to the polls. And a lot of it is going to depend, get back to Kevin's point real quickly, uh, in terms of whether or not Georgia's center of the universe or not, because the campaign is going to change radically depending on whether uh, Georgia is going to be tipping the scale. Particularly Walker's campaign has got to change its strategy pretty radically, depending on that question. Absolutely. Margaret? I absolutely agree that the um, the unsung heroes of, of the 2022 election in Georgia is the new uh, the new Republican get out the vote campaign across the state. And Kelly Loeffler is um, a big part of that, I would say. Um, I'll just and and I think that that we reporters need to do more reporting on that. The exit polls are showing that there have been wider turnouts among Republicans than Democrats in the 22 um, campaign. But there's also this this real significant fact is the lag of enthusiasm between um, Governor Kemp and Herschel Walker among Republican voters. And up and down coastal Georgia is, you know, you can see that that gap in terms of the percentage number of votes that um, Mr. Kemp got versus Mr. Walker. And that percentage is, you know, on average here in in the first district of Georgia, between three and four percentage points, um, raising up to at least five percentage points in, in some counties. So that's real. And also, we, we know, um, looking at exit polls, what we all instinctively understood, that uh, Reverend Warnock also got crossover votes from Republicans. So those, um, those are two big constituencies that are going to have to be addressed by any, any part of, of Herschel Walker's support group uh, moving forward to the finish line um, next month. Kevin, um, you know, we've talked about the fact yesterday on the show that, um, that uh, Brian Kemp outperformed Herschel Walker by some 203,000 votes. 203,000 people who wanted Brian Kemp to get a second term as governor did not cast a ballot for Herschel Walker. It's interesting that Herschel Walker and Brian Kemp kept their distance from one another throughout the general election campaign, including their last big events. They were about half an hour apart uh, in North Georgia uh, holding big rallies, and they were completely separate from one another. It appears that Herschel Walker really can use Brian Kemp in this runoff election. Uh, the question is whether that will happen or not. And the other part of that to look at is, is Donald Trump, whether he's invited or not, <laughs> going to come into this state uh, to uh, presumably support Herschel Walker, but also argue his own case uh, for why he didn't really lose the 2020 election? 
Well, I think a lot of Democrats are hoping that uh, Trump does come into the state uh, ostensibly to help Walker. But as we know, um, probably talk more about himself than anything else. And, you know, Kemp is there's been some early indications that Kemp would be, you know, his his organization would try to help Walker, be willing to help Walker. We'll see if that happens. I'm at a loss. The only thing I can think of to do, Bill, is have our sports guys do some research and see what Herschel Walker's career stats are in the fourth quarter. And let's see how he is performing late in the game and if that will be a factor here. Uh, David Wilkerson, let's look at it from the other side. Um, Raphael Warnock kept his distance from President Biden, given that uh, Biden's, as uh, Edward Lindsay points out, approval ratings in Georgia are not strong. Um and, and it, it doesn't seem likely that he is now going to turn to the president and invite him to come into the state. But it does seem to me that he at least gets some uh, indirect uh, help from the fact that, um, that Democrats across the country had a much better day on Tuesday than anyone anticipated. President Biden yesterday late afternoon did a victory lap. Uh, in his news conference at the White House. And suddenly, um, Biden seems at least modestly transformed as a winner. But Warnock can't get uh, in bed with Biden at this point, can he? I mean, I think the Republicans already put him there during the whole campaign. But uh, the reality is that, uh, like I said, Warnock has a record he's going to run on, so I don't see any change on that. Uh, If you look at it across the country, though, I think – you know, this is where I'll put it on us as as Democratic leadership is I think Democrats could have better, done a better job of talking about the president's policies and, the, and just Washington policies that have come out that have helped Georgia. I remember when the unemployment situation was going on, that was $500 million or so in tax revenue that came to the state of Georgia that helped us get through that. That helped the governor then give out tax rebates that we voted for. I actually spoke on the floor in favor of it. Um, so there are policies that that we supported that got us where we are, that put money in people's pockets, that that we as Democrats, I think, at the Capitol did a poor job of letting people know that we were doing it. So I think um, I don't see any change because you can't go back and, and, and put all that good news out there. But um, I, don't, I, I see Warnock still continuing to run on his own. Edward? Frankly, uh, I think Republicans hope that, uh, that the Democrats over the next four weeks will talk up uh, Biden. Uh, here in Georgia, because that may be the best chance that Walker has. Uh, but you know, we we talk a lot of times when we see somebody fall short of the rest of the uh, of the ticket, like Walker coming in uh, lower than other members on the ticket, and we sort of say, "What did he do wrong?" Rather than, "What did Warnock do right?" And Warnock has run a damn fine campaign. Uh, that's the bottom line. He has uh, shown it. You know, he has focused on his independence from Biden. He's focused on the fact that he can uh, work across the aisle with uh, Republicans. He has sort of linked himself to the heritage of Johnny Isaacson, who they may not always agree ideologically on a lot of issues, but in terms of understanding the, the, the importance of governing, they certainly do. So Warnock has, has, has run a, a, a really good campaign. Both parties, you know, and, and David and I have been there where we have to sit back in a room and go, okay, what did we do right and what did we do wrong? For the Democrats, um, and I know I'm not going to be invited into the room, but for the Democrats, they need to look at uh, at Walker's model, which is working across the aisle versus uh, the other members of the ticket who seem to be focused on, uh, you know, Democrats good, Republicans bad. 
that strategy didn't work, clearly didn't work for Stacey Abrams, but the strategy that Warnock is, is doing, which is, like I said, a, you know, when he's combating a, a pretty stiff headwind, uh, is, is, is running a good campaign, and Walker's going to have to deal with that. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and continue our conversation. There's going to be more to say, I think, about the run-up. But I also want to look at the exit polls uh, to get a sense of what happened to Stacey Abrams as opposed to Brian Kemp, and for that matter, uh, Abrams as opposed to uh, Raphael Warnock. We'll do that and a lot more with our panel after we take this break. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Margaret Coker, Editor-in-Chief of The Current, which you can read at thecurrentga.org. And Margaret, you know, we always like to point out it's a .org because you are a nonprofit news organization. Is with us Kevin Riley, the boss, Editor-in-Chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, State Representative David Wilkerson of Cobb County, and Edward Lindsay, member of the election board, former uh, state representative, Republican, and... Uh, uh, and a, uh, a, a partner at Denton's, the world's largest law firm, joins us uh, today. Uh, exit poll data is pretty interesting, uh, Kevin. And, and uh, let, let's talk about it, especially first in terms of contrast between Abrams and Warnock. NBC this year did the exit polling for all of the news organizations that are, are members of that uh, coalition. And uh, here's what they found. Um, Abrams really struggled with the white vote. The formula in this state is a basically a 29-29-30-30 for a Democratic candidate. You've got to have 29-30% of the white vote, 29-30% of the black vote. Abrams was only to get, able to get 25% of the white vote, while Warnock got 29%. And that was a big difference in terms of outcomes of this election. There are others, but let's start with that one, Kevin. Yeah, Bill, and let me try and clarify that because we've talked about this a lot, and I find myself confused. So just one more time, a successful Democratic candidate has to get 29 to 30% of the white vote. And then the black portion of the electorate has to be around 29, 30% because they lean so democratic. That's correct, right? I mean, you're not really talking about 29, 30% of the black vote. You're talking about the percentage in the overall electorate. Yes, thank you very okay. much. I'm glad you, you uh, corrected that. Yeah, I, I only corrected it because I have trouble understanding it. I have probably misstated it on this show and elsewhere myself. So just so we're clear. But yeah, I mean, it's a simple number. And it, what it, what's the exit polling shows and we'll probably get more analysis as this goes on, is that Stacey Abrams got 25% of the white vote, period, end of story. She missed the formula. It's not really more complicated than that. And I suppose that formula will change as Georgia changes, but it's held up extremely well. And it's clear that Brian Kemp did a lot of things to make sure he could secure that white vote. 
Um, David, I want to come back and talk about the white vote in just a moment. Um, Well, let's actually keep talking about it now, because uh, uh, Margaret Coker put an article up on uh, the current that I think is important to talk about in this context. So, David, uh, the question that a lot of people are asking is there's no question that Stacey Abrams, win or lose, is one of the smartest political minds in the state of Georgia and one of the smartest around the country. Uh, It doesn't show with two losses to Brian Kemp in some ways, but it certainly is reasonable at this point to ask the role that um, gender and race played in uh, her campaign. Yes? Definitely. I mean, as you mentioned, there's a formula out there you have to get to, and um, she's facing both being a a woman as well as a minority in the state of Georgia. And, And if you look at the the fact that she was minority leader she walked across the aisle and so you didn't see people that actually work with her saying she was some radical what you saw was someone labeled as a radical candidate not a radical leader so you didn't see a bunch of house members or house leadership coming back and saying when i worked with stacy she did she was you know far to the left and so um you know a lot of money can define people um if you any of us turn on the tv and people were running against this, we probably not recognize the person they're talking about, you know, and, and, and so it was just tough to overcome that, along with the fact that, like I said, um, Governor Kemp has had the benefit of, uh, you know, a lot of resources coming into the state that he can take credit for. If you think about it, billions of dollars came in with federal American Rescue Plan money. He had the benefit of both attacking D.C. for spending that money, but also giving that money out. <laughs> so, um, there, there are benefits of incumbency, and that's why I think you saw a larger gap this time. Yeah, um, thank you for that. Um, Margaret, uh, there was an ad that ran in some media markets, and there are people who saw it in the North Georgia market. I never did. Uh, uh, Stephen Miller's new organization, America First Legal, ran an ad which essentially said, when did racism against white people become acceptable? Um, and Margaret, the article I mentioned a minute ago that you published is from Craig Nelson, who reminds us of what happened in 1983 when Harold Washington, uh, one of the best-known uh, black political leaders in um, Chicago, ran for mayor the way that Republicans went after him with a slogan for Bernie Epton, the Republican candidate, who said... Um, in his, in his messaging, uh, Bernie Epton before it's too late. And everybody knew exactly what that meant because Bernie was white. Yeah, there's, there's, um, there's this undercurrent. You know, someone um, like myself who's, who's grown up not just in, in Georgia but through the South as a child of, of military parents, you know, there is this thread that we all still are dealing with, and um, some of us deal with it more intensely than others. Some of us deal with it every day. But the who who we trust to make our decisions for us, it's a very hard and very elemental um, part, I think, of decision-making when it comes to people going to, to vote and um, voting for a woman as the uh, highest executive uh, um, officer in our state of Georgia seems to have been something that that a lot of people questioned. And having um, a black woman uh, be that person um, is is also something that a lot of Georgians question. I think that that is, you know that we can have policy debates 
um, you know, till till the cows come home tomorrow morning. But there are there is this very elemental issue of identity in Georgia and who we want to lead us right now. And this plays out I think, in in the uh, in the exit polls, right? Uh, you know, Stacey's um, Stacey's turnout. Um, for women, um, white women was only 30%, right? Um, white men, 27%. You know, there's, it's, there's a huge hurdle to get people to trust her as, as someone to make big financial decisions, big decisions about the way that we all live our lives. And um, I will also say, though, at the same time, there was a... Um, there, there was a decrease in, in overall turnout compared to 2018. I mean, again, I'll, I'll point to our first district um, counties because those are the ones I know best. You know, two to three percentage points of, of, uh, in every single one of our counties were lower in terms of overall turnout than they were in 2018. And those numbers um, overall in the state of Georgia, I think was only 28, 29% of, of overall vote were, was the black vote. So when we go back to that hallowed formula that black uh, and minority voters need to come out in, in higher than average demographic numbers in order for a Democrat to win, here's another place where, where the Abrams campaign failed. All that said, Edward, we can't escape the fact that Brian Kemp ran a textbook perfect campaign in most ways. So to, I, I'm not suggesting that, that Abrams lost on the basis of being a woman and, and, a, and a black woman, uh, because, uh, in fact, Kemp uh, was the incumbent who ran a, a terrific uh, campaign. Uh, but, but, but we do have to look at whether or not uh, race and gender play a role in how Georgians and people across the country uh, feel about electing uh, women and African-American women to high office. You know, uh, we're moving away from those days, and, and perhaps we're not there fully, but we are moving away from those, those days. Uh, you're seeing the same issues sometimes with, with women who run in Republican circles, sometimes have the same problems that, that, uh, that were being discussed. Let me sort of real briefly pivot back to Stephen Miller uh, and, uh, and just sort of say that uh, his kind of brand of politics needs to be confined back to the days of... Uh, of left dramatics, George Wallace and Bull Connor, and let us. Uh, and, and I and I and I do believe that for every vote someone like him picks up for one candidate, he loses two or three, or at least I hope that he does. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, that that Kemp ran a good campaign based on the issue that the voters cared about the most, which was uh, the business uh, of Georgia and uh, and the economy of Georgia. He has been a good steward over the last four years through very trying times uh, with the pandemic and, and other issues that we've had to face. And on the issue that, that voters said they cared about the most, uh, he, he was clearly the one that the voters trusted the most. And so that's, that's why he won ultimately. Uh, Stacy faced some hurdles, uh, you know, when it came to uh, how she chose to run her campaign and quite frankly, how she chose to, uh, to to handle the last four years, uh, things that will that will that will be good for her in the long run. She has a national presence in terms of the civil rights movement, uh, which will uh, help her uh, with whatever career she has next. But did you know in terms of when she turned her attention to the to the rest of the nation, rather than to Georgia, that that probably hurt her with a lot of voters who who really want their governors to be viewed as focusing on 
them rather than the rest of the country. Kevin? Well, Bill, you know, I know that we talk about polling a lot on the show and we're careful about how we talk about it. But if you go back beginning in July, um, the polling that we did at the AJC said she only had 26 percent support among white voters. In September, it was 24. In October, it was 23. So that number never really moved because all of those were within that margin of error. You know, it didn't move that much. I would say it wasn't this campaign that doomed Stacey Abrams against Brian Kemp. It was all the years before the campaign. The Republicans have been campaigning against Stacey Abrams since the last gubernatorial mm. election. She could not move that number among white voters, no matter what she did, if the polling's to be believed. Uh, David, before we move past the exit polls, I want to ask you about uh, another indication that we have of where uh, specific voting blocks seem to be headed. Um, The exit polls showed that Brian Kemp got 43 percent of the Latino vote, which has been a reliably Democratic vote in this state. It's a small uh, group of voters. We know that, but it's increasing in its uh, presence, and it will become more and more powerful here. And uh, so Abrams did get 55% of that vote. But there have been concerns among Democrats that the Latino and Hispanic uh, Georgians, and we have to say always they're not a monolithic voting group. Nevertheless, Republicans seem to be making inroads there. And Renee Alegria, the CEO of Mundo Now, has said on this show on several occasions that neither Democrats nor Republicans are really addressing the concerns of Hispanic voters. Um, But there's an indication here that Democrats have some work to do to try to uh, uh, increase their presence among that population. Yeah, and yes, I mean, I think that's accurate, and it reflects a trend you're seeing across the country that uh, the Latino population is asking for uh, more of a seat at the table. And, and I know, you know, we, we do it through policy, and sometimes we don't do it through action, getting in the community. So while we're fighting in the Capitol, maybe we're not communicating that to people in the community. Um, but, I mean, we have a, a very large tent, and, and it's always an effort to make sure that all voices are heard. And, I mean, prior to the election, you heard about the concern about black males and black voters, but they did vote in similar proportions to what we voted before. The difference is that um, it's a continuing work, and it should be. I mean, we should fight for every vote, whether it's black, white, rural, urban, no matter what it may be. But you can only do that by getting out there and talking about how you're going to actually uh, help people and, and what you're doing to help people vote. And, and not only vote, but how do they get access to the PPP money? How do they get access to starting a business? I think that's what people want to know about. They care about voting, but they care about the economy. They care about jobs. And so we just need to make sure that we keep our focus on that. Edward? Well, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, to sort of look at the Republican stance, that, well, they had a very good night uh, last night, by the Tuesday night, uh, in terms of holding all the constitutional offices in the, in the, in the legislature. Hopefully they're not going to fall back and say, okay, we, we have the right formula because they do need to be working harder in every uh, community and not simply falling back to their base. Uh, well, I, I think that they need to be focused on what I'll call gateway issues more and, uh, and base issues less, which gateway issues are those issues that get you into a community that might not have historically voted for you, but perhaps you can get their votes because you're focusing on their concerns whether it be the Hispanic community, the African-American community, or any other community, 
that's going to be the, the challenge of the Republican Party uh, moving forward if they, A, want to continue being the dominant party in the state of Georgia and, B, want to uh, reclaim uh, some of their dominance, their former dominance on the national level. They've got to, they got to reach out to communities that they just haven't reached out to in the past. Um, that's the um, lesson that Republicans have here. Uh, Margaret, before we get to the break, real quickly, let's look at a couple of congressional races that uh, were of interest. Number one, uh, the second district down in southwest Georgia that Sanford Bishop has represented for like three decades, uh, it, it appeared that the way the lines were redrawn by the legislature, he might face a pretty significant challenge from his opponent down there, uh, his Republican opponent. But in fact, in that race, Sanford Bishop prevailed. He will go back for another term in Congress. But let's talk about the district where you are, the first district, Buddy Carter, uh, the incumbent there, uh, Buddy Carter, who uh, voted against uh, uh, certifying the electors on January 6th. Um, Buddy Carter has been in the Trump camp. There were people in, in your communities down there who really thought the Democrat Wade Herring might be a guy who could attract some voters, but it's still a Republican district. Buddy Carter won pretty convincingly, yes? Yes, he absolutely did. And, um, and the, he, he won by the same margins that Kemp won in, in our first district county. So I would, I would say two things about that. One, the power of incumbency is, is on display, I think, at all levels up and down the ballot. Um, voters seem to be satisfied with the people who've been representing them um, from the state of Georgia over the last two, four, six years. But again, I think um, Representative Carter actually did had ran his own um, his own strategy very deftly and weaving between the divisions in the state Democrat uh, state Republican Party. He um, he is the Trump surrogate in coastal Georgia. He is proudly endorsed by Trump, but at the same time he uh, he didn't miss a beat to embrace Kemp when he could, and that meant showing up at Kemp's own campaign rallies. It meant showing up for photo ops at, at um, big events like the, the Hyundai groundbreaking ceremony here in Bryan County. And so he's somehow been able to um, read, read the first district enough. He's not a member of the Freedom Caucus, and he's, he tries to um, get into um, all, all small towns, um, all big celebrations through coastal Georgia. He has a strong presence here. And without a whole lot of money being spent on his campaign, he, he rewon the district. Ah, the tightrope walking of some Republicans in this election cycle in Georgia. It's fascinating. Thank you for that. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, I want to talk about what I think is going to be a seismic change in the Georgia legislature when they meet starting in January. Uh, But first, these messages. Quick note, the Political Rewind team is taking a day of rest tomorrow on Veterans Day. We're going to let NPR fill our time slot because we are gearing up on Monday to really get into this runoff election and all the other political news that we'll deal with. Um, But in the meantime, um, uh, all of you out there who are veterans, we honor your service. Um, There's a lot of talk about whether democracy is still strong, but one of the reasons, if it is, is the sacrifices and the service of all of you out there. So uh, we send you our best. David Wilkerson, I 
there were very few legislative seats that were competitive, thanks to gerrymandering. Uh, so Republicans control both the House and Senate starting in January. That's what you'll be faced with. But there's two new factors that are terribly important. David Ralston will not run for re-election for Speaker. I've called him the cooling saucer in the heated Republican caucus there, where there are a lot of people much more conservative than he is. And on the other side of the building... Burt Jones, uh, a far-right conservative who was a fake elector uh, and an election denier, will become the leader of the Senate as lieutenant governor. How do you think all those changes are going to affect what you all do in working in some ways together uh, starting in the next session? <clears throat> I think I think we're all going to be praying that um, Governor Kemp <laughs> kind of leads the discussion. But um, no, first I just want to say um, prayers go out to the speaker and his family as he uh, deals with his health issues. But um, I guess as far as the legislature, there's going to be a lot of changes, like you said. The, the reality is over the last several years, um, there's been a rightward shift in both chambers anyway. Because if you think about it, bills that never would have passed, we used to, you know, that we considered fringe, such as, you know, constitutional carry, um, the abortion bill, uh, the voting bill, the, I mean, so all of those passed anyway. So I, I don't know if you would have seen anything different passed, except maybe, um, you know, city of Buckhead, but that was actually the lieutenant governor that came out and stopped that. So um, it sounds like on the Republican side, they've kind of come together with two factions, basically, the John Burns team, and then they've got the um, Barry Fleming team. So um, whoever it is, we'll work with. Uh, both are very intelligent people, both are very conservative. And so as far as I'm concerned, I'll work with either one. Um, but um, it will definitely be a change from that steady, you know, guiding hand that we've had over the last uh, several years, for, you know, past decade or so. Uh, Edward, uh, it is certainly true uh, that David makes the point that Ralston, who himself has been a moderating force, uh, was pushed to the right by his own members and by constituents on the fetal heartbeat abortion law, one of the strictest in the country. Um, he, he couldn't hold the line against that. Uh, he was a supporter, to the best of my knowledge, of guns everywhere, this so-called constitutional carry bill. So there's no question the legislature is still a right conservative uh, organization, both the Senate, House and even more so in the Senate. So w what in your mind will it mean that Ralston will no longer preside over that body? Well, Ralston brought uh, a great amount of gravitas that comes with uh, serving as the, the speaker for 12 years. Um, and, and I had the honor of riding in on his coattails in 2009 when I was elected whip uh, on, in the same uh, election that he was elected speaker, and I worked closely with him. And, and he was a steady force. Um, uh, you know, he, he worked very hard to make sure that Republicans across the, the ideological plane, and, and also a great many Democrats as well, understood that, that at the end of the day, uh, politics be damned, uh, the General Assembly had to govern. Uh, and had to pass those pieces of legislation that may not fit within one particular ideological pigeonhole or another, but had to be, a, be able to do things for the people. Mary Margaret Oliver, who appears on the show a lot with you as well, loves to tell the story about how the speaker once at a time said, you know, the fact of the matter is that, that part of our, a great 
most important part of our job is to help people. And, and David understood that. Uh, and we're going to see who steps into his shoes on Monday uh, when the Republican caucus votes to see who will be the, the, their choice for the next speaker uh, between Barry Fleming and John Burns. I, I know both of them, and, and David is quite right that they are both very intelligent people, uh, very conservative people, but very cons- uh, intelligent people. But I will also say this, and, and I serve with both of them as well. They also understand that at the end of the day, uh, that the, the General Assembly uh, has to be part of the governing uh, entity. And so um, while there may be some um, uh, social issues that, that, that come up that may not come up before, the, the bulk of what the General Assembly does, I do expect to continue underneath their, their leadership. And then we'll Margaret have to see what happens over in the Senate. <laughs> Mar- Margaret and then Kevin, I'd love the, to ask you this question. Um, in in the first debate, uh, his first debate, Brian Kemp uh, suggested that he had no intention of doing anything more about abortion. He was satisfied with the law that exists now. But in the second debate, he didn't say that. In the second debate, he said, I can't control what the legislature does. Um, it, it, I'm not sure that a Ralston uh, – again, he would have faced enormous pressure. But I'm not sure a Ralston would have tried to lead his – uh, body toward even stricter abortion laws. But the brakes are off in terms of that issue uh, starting in January. Well, I, I think that this is precisely one of the reasons why the um, the race uh, to succeed uh, Mr. Ralston is so important, because there are two visions for the Republican Party. One is the Big Ten, as, as Edward um, um, clearly, um, clearly subscribes to and thinks is important. And then there's another tent that is smaller. And when you look at the exit polling um, from this um, this week's elections, you see that the vast majority of Georgians, no matter who you voted for, believe that abortion should remain legal. And so this is one issue that um, that 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 can be decided um, by the majority House or the majority Senate. It- and Kevin, it turns out in the exit polling that abortion was the second most important issue that Georgia's uh, Georgia voters made their choices based on. They still elected Brian Kemp. Uh, you're we're not hearing you, Kevin. We've lost you. Sorry, there. Sorry about that. Um, can you? Uh, yeah. The speaker is going to be missed. And I'll just say, I've been here 12 years. My tenure at the AJC has matched his tenure as speaker. And um, I, he has always been available as a leader of the state to talk with us about what's important and what he thinks is not important and what he's going to try to do. All right. We are out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, uh, as the boss, gets the last word today. Um, Thank you so much, everybody, for a terrific conversation. You, Kevin Riley, Margaret Coker of The Current, David Wilkerson, good luck. I mean, you've got to start gearing up for the legislative session fairly soon. And Edward Lindsay, we always love having you on the show as well. We're going to, as I said, take tomorrow off and rest up a little bit before we get back into the midst of things. Uh, Edward uh, mentioned Mary Margaret Oliver. In fact, Mary Margaret will be with us on uh, Monday's show along with uh, Leo Smith and a couple other panelists uh, to be named in the day or so ahead. So we hope you'll come back for uh, that show. Uh, I want to thank again Natalie Mendenhall, uh, Chase McGee, Victoria Evans-Cash, 
uh, and Jake Cook for the work they did this week. We had a lot of shows on the air, and they're the reason we were able to pull them off, I hope, successfully. Uh, Y'all have a great weekend. We'll be back Monday. Take care. Stay healthy. Go get a flu shot and maybe a COVID booster while you're at it. Bye, everybody.